Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Health Conscious Podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by my ACHE mentor, Raymond Gomez. Raymond is a senior product manager of Network Strategy Solutions at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. In this role, he is responsible for developing provider network solutions for Blue Cross's national major accounts. He has over 15 years of healthcare industry experience working on the front lines of healthcare finance and care delivery innovation. Prior to transitioning to his current domain, Raymond worked as an in-house quality improvement consultant for some of the largest provider network organizations in New England, including Stewart Healthcare, Atrius Health, and Beth Israel Leahy. His focus in these roles was on quality measurement and improvement and optimizing clinical and business operations to succeed in emerging risk-based payer contracts. Raymond is passionate about exploring where the business of healthcare intersects with public health and how healthcare professionals can align interests in order to deliver safe, timely, effective, affordable, patient-centered care for all. He holds a Master of Public Health from Boston University and an MBA from the Stephen M. Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Raymond also has a Lean Six Sigma green belt and in his spare time roots for all Boston sports teams and can be found around local salsa hotspots in Boston. I can personally attest to the tremendous impact that Raymond has had on my professional development. And I'm fully confident that this episode has something to offer for all of our listeners. Last but not least, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for continually tuning in. And with that, we'll start the episode. Raymond, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. As we both know, this episode has been a long time coming, but very excited to have you on as a guest with us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jefferson and Melin. And heard a few of your podcast episodes. I'm really a big fan of what you guys are doing. Um, really, you know, trying to engage the younger professional generations into a lot of the emerging trends in healthcare. So really excited to be here, share my insights and, and to hear more and learn about um, some of the things that you guys are doing and things that you guys are interested in. Well, we're very excited to have you, Raymond. And as I know firsthand from all the discussions, you're going to have a lot of great insights for our listeners. To get us started, can you talk about two major trends you think are gaining traction in the payer space and then also describe what you think their long-term implications are? Yeah, so there's, I think there's a lot of ways to tackle this question. So I think generally, if you ask somebody that's out there in the healthcare field, um, health services administration, healthcare management, that, that kind of realm, um, you might hear some common themes. So I think the top themes that you're going to hear is, look, in the past 10 to 20 years, there's been a migration in terms of healthcare financing, such as the moving away from fee-for-service to more global payment models and risk arrangements, really trying to take away the incentives around producing more care that has, doesn't have commensurate value to what we're paying for it as a society. Um, also, digitization of healthcare through EMRs has been a huge innovation because it's really allowed us um, as a healthcare community to, to really begin analyzing data from a population health lens and to begin thinking about how to manage 
populations rather than just focusing on one-off patient interactions. Because when you're focused on one-off patient interactions, you're going to have good outcomes, but you're going to have good outcomes to the patients that you see. But there's a lot of patients that may be in your panel that you just don't have relationships with. But I think I'd like to frame uh, my response a little bit slightly different because one of the major trends that I see in healthcare is really a trend that we're seeing virtually in every business and every industry. And that's really the move away from being a transaction-based business to a relationship-based business. So just think about any of the major brands and companies that you interact with today, right? You think about e-commerce, you could buy something online and maybe you'll come back and buy something again eventually. Or Amazon will just get you as a Prime member and really bring you into their ecosystem of services, brands, and solutions. So now you're getting your music, you're getting your groceries, you're getting your movies, and you're getting, you know, your, your lotions and whatever else you need from, from one, um, you know, from one provider. Uh, Apple, again, bringing you into an ecosystem, right? And so healthcare has been really slow in doing that, but the migration away from fee-for-service combined with the digitization of healthcare data has enabled healthcare to finally begin and to really capitalize on building a relationship with you as opposed to being transaction-based. So transaction-based, think about like somebody has an acute illness, whether it's cancer or you need a hip replacement or you need a flu shot, right? So these are all one-off interactions. But once I start thinking about my relationships with a patient in terms of a longer term relationship that's broader across a continuum that spans um, a longer degree of time, then the whole model shifts because now I can not only focus on providing you healthcare when you need it, that's episodic, but now I can sh shift my focus to focusing more on wellness and prevention. Oh, and by the way, I can deal with the acute care needs as those develop as well. So in a relationship-based model, you're really looking at a long timeline. And ideally, you've, that timeline lasts from the point somebody is born to the point that somebody passes. Okay. So that's a long timeline. And so that's each one of those points along the timeline represents an area where I can monetize the relationship. And so once you start thinking about healthcare in terms of a relationship and thinking about that timeline as really being a cradle to grave relationship, you end up in a place where you're really doing more customer discovery. Customers that were never defined or maybe didn't exist years ago, for example, um, things like um, very, um, like, like a minute clinic, for example, that's very small, um, you know, you need a flu shot, maybe you just need to be, um, you need a, a nurse practitioner to sign off that you're okay to play sports or something like this. Typically, all of those interactions took place in a doctor's office. And people now realize, wait a second, if we can start thinking about healthcare 
as a longer relationship across a broader continuum. Maybe not all healthcare belongs in a hospital, and maybe not all healthcare belongs in a doctor's office, and maybe not all healthcare belongs in a minute clinic. Maybe some of it can be done um, through an app on your phone, right? So I think the migration of fee-for-service into global payment models combined with the digitization has allowed us to really think more broadly about the various touch points and interactions that providers can have with patients. And every day we're discovering new touch points of where we can slice and dice that timeline in a way that says, you know what, I'm gonna own this particular slice of the care continuum. And you're just seeing a lot more payers coming into this space right now. And I think that's, um, you know, it's gonna produce a lot more competition in a healthy way to the point that, um, you know, I think a lot of legacy providers are going to have to think um, really strategically either about developing their own new capabilities, um, developing new care models, or developing new strategic partners with um, new and emerging uh, players that are entering the healthcare space. That's a really interesting point, Raymond, because when I was working consulting and working with clients in more traditional consumer-focused industries, that was a really strong point that they made of consumers looking for kind of a one-stop shop and the ability to have all of their needs serviced from one entity. And it's interesting to hear how, from your vantage point, this is going to kind of bleed into healthcare. And as a result, it's going to create more of a longitudinal view of either patients or members, depending on what perspective you're looking at from. And then also how that's going to lead to them ultimately winning a bigger share of the patient or member's wallet. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it because, you know, I work in healthcare, but, you know, we're all patients at some point. And let me tell you, it's a horrible experience. I mean, you go to the doctor's office and they have you fill out a form that you filled out five to 10 times and at every last visit that you've been there. Um, so it, you don't get the sense that they really know you. Um, the provider spends most of the time uh, looking at the computer because they need to check boxes for their quality scores, et cetera. So again, it's not like you don't get the sense that they're building a relationship with you and they're not fully leveraging that data in a way that actually makes it easier for them to appear to want to build a relationship with you. Um, so I just feel like... Um, a lot of these new entrants, particularly those that are, are going to leverage AI in healthcare in terms of, uh, you, you know, trying to um, do some sort of diagnostic services, right? So if somebody calls or gets um, or connects through like a chat bot where they enter their symptoms and using AI technology, they're able to kind of assess like at a very basic level, like, hey, you need to go to the emergency room right away, just given the symptoms you described, or um, kind of giving somebody more direction in terms of what their immediate concerns are. I think that's, that's a very different model than what we're used to, because what we're used to now is calling the doctor's office, and maybe I'll leave a message, and maybe I'll get a call back today, and maybe I can get an appointment next week. But the reality is, you know, uh, a patient-centered model would be a lot more responsive to what my real life looks like. And again, my life is that timeline 
right? And that, and at any point along that timeline, I need to access the healthcare system in a way that is efficient and timely and affordable and responsive to what I need versus, you know, the office closes at six and we don't work weekends because we, we all have off and, you know, the doctors are playing golf. You know, in the future, those that have care models that that really cling to the past are, are those that are going to struggle. Raymond, this past election season, there was a lot of talk and a lot of people going back and forth between whether or not the United States should have a single payer healthcare system. And while that might be something that is very, very hard to establish for many reasons, because there's a lot of stakeholders involved, can you just talk about what you've seen and what you've heard from the Biden administration and sort of some of the things that they're doing to regulate health insurers uh, who have clearly done well financially in the pandemic? Yeah, you know, I think those of us that care a lot about these issues during the last election cycle in 2020, we you know, may have taken some degree of comfort that a lot of things that were seen as, you know, very pie in the sky aspirational were finally becoming more uh, you know, more mainstream political stances in uh, a lot of the candidates that were running for office, you know, such as Medicare for all and, and you know, things like this. But I also would like to underscore that there's a flip side to that. In the same way that something that may have seen extreme um, not that long ago, such as a Medicare for all model, you're also seeing other proposals that also are equally as extreme in the other direction, such as repealing Obamacare. Before, the mantra was repeal and replace. But recall that in the last administration, the debate that really took place on um, in Congress that John McCain killed with his vote in the Senate was to repeal Obamacare and replace it with nothing, right? So, so that's also something that, you know, not that long ago would have probably been seen as a loser position for a political party to take, but now it's seen as a more mainstream position. Hey, let's take away these protections that were guaranteed by this legislation and let's not replace it with anything. Right. So it's almost like you're seeing extreme positions and, and maybe extreme is not the right word, but I'll use it for, for lack of a better term right now. But you're seeing extreme positions on both ends, really um, taking a more mainstream um, kind of appetite in the electorate. And I think that's exciting, but at the same time, really concerning. And for those of us that you know, may care about these issues, you know, we can get excited about some of the, you know, some of the more progressive stances. Um, at the same time, you know, we should also pay attention to um, some of the other, um, you know, stances that are becoming more mainstream on the other side as well. And, you know, in terms of what I see with the Biden administration, I would say that, look, um, COVID-19 pandemic, really came out of nowhere. And really when the pandemic took hold, the healthcare discussion really shifted away from um, healthcare policy to responding to the global pandemic, 
right? And so I, I don't really see much, um, especially now with the midterm elections happening later this year, um, I don't see much movement taking place in terms of um, you know, anything that's, that's earth shattering from the Biden administration. What I would have liked to have seen from the Biden administration when he had more, um, when he was more in his honeymoon period and before uh, the pandemic took hold, obviously, was, you know, he was never for Medicare for all. You know, I think he, he has more of a market-based um, view of healthcare solutions. And I think one thing that he could have done that would have been great would have been advo the advocation of decoupling health insurance from your employer. You know, imagine if we did that, like you can tackle that as a healthcare um, solution and at the same time as an economic solution, because we know that there are many people that are married to their jobs, not because they necessarily care for their jobs, but because they can't afford to lose their health insurance coverage. If you were to decouple health insurance coverage from your employer, I think it would unleash a wave of innovation in this country on a number of fronts. Firstly, no one would feel tied to their job so they can go and pursue things that they really care about. They could start their own business. They could start their own nonprofit. They can work for another company that you know maybe doesn't have or didn't have as many robust benefits. And then you would have all of the health insurance companies in the country really competing for members the same way your car insurance company competes for your attention and your dollars. And it would be a lot more uh, consumer centric, right? And so you'd have more consumer friendly, consumer directed models, right? I think now when you tie health insurance to your employer, your employer is really the customer. You're, you're just the end user, but you're not shopping for healthcare. Your employer shops for healthcare on your behalf. And during an open enrollment period, they say, you have one option. You either enroll or you don't. Or if you're lucky, maybe you have more than one option to choose from. And you may not fully understand the features and benefits of each of those products that are available to you. And you might make just a cost decision. But when you purchase something like car insurance or homeowner's insurance, you're really looking at the things that you might need, right? Like if you live in a place that is prone to flooding or that's prone to wildfires, or, you know, maybe you have um, a, a younger, newer driver in your family. And so you, you want to uh, purchase some additional coverage for your car or something like this you're able to make those decisions a lot easier when the health insurance companies can actually market to you and say, hey, Joe individual, these are the specific features and benefits. This is the network coverage of this product. Now compare it to this product, compare the price here, compare the cost share there versus now you don't necessarily have that visibility into what you're purchasing. Um, it's not something that the Biden administration um, really touted, but I think that would have been something that, you know, if any 
president would have, or any one of the candidates on the Democratic side would have pursued something like that. I think it would have been a centrist like Biden versus obviously a, a Medicare for all, which you know he came out uh, very early and often as not something that he wanted to pursue. Got it. Those are some really cool insights, especially the part where you talk about decoupling. And we've we've heard a lot about uh, you know, consumer-driven healthcare in the last couple of years. And it seems like there's definitely an increase in emphasis on that. But uh, I'm really curious to see how this decoupling process is going to work uh, if successfully that it puts more power in the hands of the consumers and sort of takes away the leveraging power from the payers. You know, and another thing too, is that employers, if you were to decouple health insurance from your employer, it doesn't mean that your employers wouldn't offer health insurance. They would offer other ancillary products, right? They might offer other wellness programs. They might offer additional supplementary coverage for things like IVF, for example. So they would still be in the game of providing some form of coverage, but it would be more um, tied to their benefit strategy in terms of the acquisition and retention of talent. Right. So it'd be more along the lines of how do we compete for talent, right, through our the benefits and the strategy that we develop around those benefits versus, okay, we have to provide something because everyone does. You know, I think some employer groups, particularly the larger ones, think more strategically about their benefit offerings. But the reality is that there's a lot of, you know, most people work for small employers and health insurance is expensive. And at the end of the day, it may just be a cost factor. Raymond, um, I next want to switch gears and focus a little bit on career development and mentorship. You're obviously my ACHE mentor and have given me a lot of valuable career advice over the past few months. And with that, can you talk more about how early careers can make strategic investments in themselves from a skill set and relationship standpoint to further their career trajectory? Yeah, um, you know, Jefferson, through our relationship, I think you know that I'm really big on analogies. I, I think it really helps hammer home um, a lot of um, a lot of abstract ideas. And in terms of being an early careerist, if I was to talk to you know somebody like either of you or anybody just starting out their career, regardless of industry, I would probably want to underscore the point that you know, your education and training is most valuable in the immediate months and year right after graduation, right? So once you get to a point where you've got, say, five to 10 years under your belt, really nobody's going to care that much that you graduated from XYZ school or that you didn't graduate from XYZ school. They're going to want to know what your track record has been since then. So imagine if you're somebody who maybe you didn't go to school or um, graduated from a lower tier program or something like this, but you entered the workforce and you killed it and you developed a reputation for somebody that gets things done and you become a rock star and the Michael Jordan of your industry. And then somebody wants to hire you to be the CXO at their company. Nobody's at that point, once you reach that point in your career, nobody's going to say, yeah, but that person didn't go to a good school. We shouldn't hire them. It's just not going to happen. But in the months 
and one to two years, I'll say, after you graduate, your education has the most value. So the key is how do you really make that first year count, right? So that once you're, you have some experience under your belt, you're on a trajectory where, okay, maybe my education doesn't matter as much, but I have set myself up nicely in the past one to two years where somebody can look at my track record and I'm still on an upward trajectory. So how, how do you best do that? And I would say that you should really begin to think of yourself as a stock. No different than a stock that's sold on an exchange. And so any stock, if you're interested in investing or, or anything like this, um, you want to ask yourself, how attractive is the stock? Is this a buy, a sell, or a hold? And because when you're graduating, your degree is the most valuable once you're graduating, the minute you walk off that stage, you should think of yourself as a stock that people would want to buy. Right. I should be able to look at somebody that is a newly minted MHA or MPH or MBA, et cetera, and say, I want to invest in that person's career because the likelihood that it's going to take off is greatest now. So the question is, how do you make yourself a buy? I would say that the same way that a business engages in strategic planning and they continuously monitor the environment in order to stay relevant and competitive you need to do that as well, right? I think a lot of people make the mistake that I graduated, I could stop learning now, I graduated so I can cut down on any extracurricular activities. I think in a competitive market, you would be amazed, competitive labor market, you would be amazed of how many people go to work and they do good work, right? Like generally speaking, most people that have nine to fives, they're working a job, they're not screwing up, right? But there's a lot of people that go to work and they do good work. They put in their eight hours and they come home and they say, okay, I did my eight hours. I'd like my success now. But the reality is think of that person as just the baseline expectation. And you would never invest in a company that is not beating the market. So if you think about just investing for a second, on average, over the long run, the S&P 500, as an example, returns between 8 and 10% a year, on average. Some years more, some years less, but on average, 8 to 10% a year. So if the labor market returns 8 to 10% of value every year, on average, right, that's the average employee going to work, they return 8 to 10% per year. You need to think, how can I beat that 8 to 10? And if you strive to beat what that eight to 10 is, you're gonna to start to deviate from your peers because most people are going to do that base minimum. And so you have to think of yourself, well, okay, how do I stay relevant to in my industry? I can network in my company, but you know, I live in a city that, you know, say New York City, I live in Philadelphia, I live in Boston, I live in DC. Network at your company and network in your city. Stay relevant. 
join organizations, increase your network, make sure that people know who you are and that those people that know who you are know that you're somebody that produces great work. If you do some of those basic things, like continue to learn, continue to build your network, continue to stay relevant, continue to put yourself out there in terms of meeting new people, both inside and outside of your industry, you will beat the eight to 10%. And any company that beats the eight to 10% is a buy. Because if you're not beating the average and the average is eight to 10% in the S&P 500, if I'm an investor, why would I buy you? I'll just buy an S&P 500 index fund, right? I, I would never buy a stock that's producing less than eight to 10%. And so look around you and look at your peers. And these are smart people, right? You guys went to school with um, really smart, talented people that can do good work. But the tendency tends to be in doing your job, producing at the eight to 10%, if we're going with the S&P analogy, and assuming that that's going to generate success. Because as you continue on in your career, you're going to see that um, the competition becomes fierce. And so you have to start thinking about how do I continuously make myself a buy? And so think about your peers as just the baseline average, eight to 10%. And you need to find a variance above that. And how do you do that? Cultivating relationships, networking within your organization, and then outside of your organization as well. If, if you're just putting in 40 hours a week at work, that's great. See if you can do more within your organization. And if you're not doing more within your organization, think about how to find additional um ways to connect with like-minded people outside of work such that you're filling at least 60 hours a week of your time in your professional development. Unpacking your insights, I'm kind of seeing two big takeaways that you have. The first is when you're graduating, you have to kind of use your degree and your new academic experiences to set a foundation for your career. And then from there, it's all about refinement and continuous improvement both in terms of your skill set and what you can actually do on the job, but also in terms of your professional network and making sure you're keeping your name out there and also staying relevant. You know, I, I think if you think about your career and, and this is assuming that you're working um, as an employee, I think if you're an entrepreneur, if you want to go off on your own thing, the calculation becomes a little different. So I'm assuming, you know, somebody's, maybe it's not interested in that route and they're thinking about developing their career um, in an organization. So if you're building your career in an organization, you're going to have to be hired by somebody. And oftentimes the person who's evaluating you as, you know, for an opportunity, they're thinking about risk, right? So they're thinking, is this person going to be a risk for me? because they may be managing you. And they're thinking, you know, if this person isn't, you know, doesn't work out, the reality is, is it's very difficult to get rid of somebody, um, you know, just because they're, they're legal protections and HR makes you jump through a number of hurdles, et cetera. And people don't wanna deal with that headache. And so they're, you know, you're talking to somebody who may be a hiring manager, they're assessing 
you for fit in terms of the level of risk that you represent for them, right? And so in some cases, if you have a bad hiring manager and you're knocking an interview out of the park and you've made it clear that you are the Michael Jordan of your field, you know, a bad manager may think, hey, this person's going to make me look bad. I'm not going to hire him. I'm going to hire the, the, you know, the person who's just going to do what they're told and is not going to cause waves for me and not going to cause problems for me. Well, you, you just dodged a bullet, right? Because that's not the kind of person that you want to work for. But if you still have somebody that um, is not that kind of manager who's interested in, hey, this is a smart person, ambitious, has great ideas, they can grow into the role, they bring a degree of curiosity into the role. And I think that would be really helpful to the team. And I'd love to be able to mentor somebody like this and, and, and really watch their career take off. They're still evaluating you to some degree on the degree of risk that, that you may present, right? And so that's where like relationships really come into play because if somebody's concerned about risk, which all hiring managers are, it becomes easier to land on somebody when you know them, even if they're not necessarily the best candidate. And that's an unpopular opinion. Um, but the reality is that that's how a lot of decisions are made. And so I think you undervalue relationships whether they're formal relationships at your current employer or informal relationships that you develop on your own by really branching out outside of your organization into your city or through organizations like ACHE, um, that's where you'll get a, you'll find that you'll get a lot more opportunities that become a lot easier of a sell because if somebody has a relationship with you, you really represent very little risk even though there may be somebody who's quote, um, maybe a better fit or a better candidate or more of a rock star than you. The reality is I don't know that person. And what I don't know represents risk to me as a hiring manager. So I'm more comfortable going with somebody that I know. Raymond, I gotta say, I love the analogies here. And I guess I'll keep this one going since I'm a big sports fan. Uh, for all the Tom Brady's out there, you know, it's always nice to have a guy like Bill Belichick uh, taking you under your wing and coaching you. And so my question is here in regards to mentorship uh, for all the early careers out there, um, you know, those either out of school immediately or a couple of years in the workforce. How do you how do you find a mentor? Um, what sort of conversations do you even have to, to, to be able to go up to them and say, hey, can you take me under your wing? Because I've always felt like that is at least for me personally, um, it adds a lot of pressure on someone to be able to take on that kind of role for you. And what are, you know, what are some factors that you used to identify whether this person is even the right person to sort of take you under their wing and to train you and coach you and really elevate your, your career to the next level? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And Jefferson knows um, through our prior conversations that um, one of the analogies that I make in terms of the world of work is that it's really not that different than dating. Um, I think we all know people, um, just you can think about them in your head. You don't have to say any names out loud, but we all know people who date without a purpose, right? And people who do those things may not be as successful in that world. 
And so how does that tie to mentoring and finding a mentor that you know, could be beneficial to you? Similar to dating, I think if you're interested in meeting somebody and dating them, and I mean for a serious relationship, not something that's casual, right? But if you're interested in dating somebody, sometimes it's even helpful, even before you go out there and meet people, to think about the kind of person that you would like to meet, the kind of person that you would connect well with, the kind of values that are important to you, like what kind of qualities and characteristics are you looking for? And I think if you approach looking for a mentor without some degree of purposefulness and really thinking about what it is that you're looking for in a mentor, then it may be difficult to find the right match. I I found through my experience that when people are interested in finding a mentor, they may fall back on, um, on titles and positions, right? So if you meet somebody who um, maybe, you know, they they have a prestigious title or they work for, you know, a well-established company or, you know, they have an amazing LinkedIn profile, you may think, wow, this this person has the kind of career path and trajectory that I would like for myself. This is exactly the kind of mentor that I'm looking for. That may not always be the case. Like, I, I think you do want a mentor that um, has some degree of experience. You don't want a mentor that um, is a peer, because at that point, like, it's kind of like the blind leading the blind. You do need somebody with experience. But aside from that, you're looking for um, certain qualities that are important to you, right? And this could be somebody outside of your industry. It could be somebody outside of your function. Um, you know, maybe somebody with the same cultural background is somebody that you may look for right now because that's something that's important to you right now. And as you progress in your career, you may look for other things in a mentor. But it's important to identify those features and qualities and traits that are important to you and to find a mentor that that fits that. And maybe it's somebody who has an amazing job title and and a really impressive career trajectory. That's great. Um, But it may not always be that. And so it's really more individual to the person, similar to dating. You know, what you may find attractive is not what I find attractive and is not what Jefferson finds attractive. But, you know, your heart is attracted to what it's attracted to. And so, you know, in terms of how you want to guide your career. So it's not only about where you envision you would like your career to go, but the method in which you would like to pursue it, the kind of um, leadership style that you would like to cultivate, right? So if you're somebody who's interested in being in the C-suite in an organization one day, you'll find that there are different management styles in that suite. Right. And so you may say, you know, I know my personality. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm comfortable with. And I know where I may be outside of my realm. And so you might want to find somebody who more or less mirrors your style in a lot of ways or a style that you would like to have. Maybe you don't have it, but you admire that in somebody else. And so I think doing this internal self-assessment, no different than you would if you were interested in looking for a serious dating relationship. I think that's the first step. 
and then finding somebody that that has maybe not everyone's gonna fit um your profile a hundred percent but they'll fit it close enough and those are the kind of um mentors that you may find a, a better match now in terms of you know putting yourself out there and you know maybe it might be an imposition i think i heard you say maybe that's not the exact word that you said as well um i agree um i will also say that you'll be surprised at how many people are able and willing to and happy to take time out of their day and share with you their insights or you know have you bounce opinions off of them. I think you'll be surprised at how many people are, are willing to do that um, for somebody. But uh, I'll also say that you also, just like in dating, just like you may imagine, you know, I'm interested in meeting this kind of person, right? And now that you've defined that, you have to ask yourself, now, how do I make myself attractive to that kind of person? Right. So if you're interested in somebody that um, is a hard worker and, you know, somebody who's very, um, you know, very uh, somebody who's more organized. Right. But you're sitting at home all day playing video games and you don't have much going on. Chances are that person's not going to be as attractive to what you bring to the table. So. Yeah, I don't think a prospective mentor is necessarily expecting that you add tremendous value for them. But at a minimum, if you approach the relationship with a degree of, of respect, such as, you know, the last time we spoke, you know, I know we touched upon these two or three things. And these are the action steps that I've taken. And I think this is how I'm processing, you know, some of the development opportunities that you and I have identified. Now, me as a mentor, when I hear a mentee, you know, approach the relationship that way, I can see that it's easy for me to invest in the relationship because they're equally as invested in the relationship because I can't care about somebody's growth and development more than they do. Right. And so I think those sorts of proactive um, approaches and and really marketing or branding yourself as somebody who is worth mentoring is key to establishing that formal relationship. And, and you'll be surprised. And I'm not going to say you'll bat 100 percent. But you'll be surprised. You, if you do those things, you'll get a lot more yeses than noes. This is some really solid piece of advice, uh, specifically with you sort of touching on how it's so easy to fall into that trap of looking up to people that are extremely accomplished and bring all these awards and accolades with them. But they may not necessarily be the right person for you to look up to. And it sounds like the goal here is to, to really define what your goals and objectives are going into this and sort of what you hope to get out of it and then sort of figure out who aligns with those and who's really willing to take you on. So I really appreciate that advice. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, once you find somebody or, or you think that you're narrowing in on, um, on you know, a mentor-mentee relationship, I think it's important to know too, like I, I you know, I, I mentioned defining those 
features and qualities that you're looking for in a mentor. And, and those are unique to the individual. I think there are certain things that are not unique to the individual that I would say are more or less hard and fast rules. And one of those is, you know, not a peer. Okay. You already have your friends that you can ask their opinions and bounce ideas off of. That's not what you're looking for in a mentor. We've established that, but also somebody who is a good listener because not of, not everyone knows how to be a good mentor. I think the tendency with some people who maybe fancy themselves as a mentor is they view the relationship as more paternalistic where, you know, maybe you might approach them and say, hey, I'm interested in pursuing this job opportunity, or I'm interested in switching functions at the company, or I'm interested in, you know, going to grad school or whatever. And they'll lead with what your particular area of curiosity is and push you in that direction. You should definitely apply for that promotion. You should definitely, you know, try to switch functions into that other business area. And you should definitely go to grad school. And so what they're doing is they're being prescriptive. I think a good mentor is never going to tell you what you should do. A good mentor will do a lot more listening, will ask a lot of questions, will draw on their experiences and, you know, what they know from the world around them all to help you arrive at these answers for yourself. And, you know, if you find yourself in a, a mentor relationship that's more paternalistic, you know, maybe that's something that you're looking for. You know, some people may find some value in that. Some people maybe, um, you know, maybe they make up their mind or they make a decision, but they just need to hear it from somebody else. That's a different story. Right. But if you're somebody that's just um, exploring new ideas and you find that you have a mentor that's more prescriptive and paternalistic, you know, I, 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 I tread cautiously with those relationships because at the end of the day, it's your career and it's your life. And you're the one that's going to have to live with the decisions that you make. And a good mentor is going to understand that. And you know, they may say, look, if I was in your shoes, I would pursue this opportunity or I wouldn't pursue that opportunity. A good mentor may learn that you chose to do the opposite of what they suggested and they'll still empower you and, you know, appreciate that, you know, you're somebody that makes your own decisions. You've, you've weighed all the different choices in front of you and you made a choice, right? And so I'd, I'd say that's um, a hard and fast rule of, something to look for in a mentor that one shouldn't overlook. Raymond, for our last question, I want to piggyback, piggyback off of what Millen had asked. From the perspective of a mentee, you had kind of alluded to this earlier, but can you go a little bit further on elaborating what mentees can do to make themselves attractive and deserve to be mentored? Yeah, um, I think there are two things. There's, there's the hard and there's the soft. So the hard is your job um, and everything surrounding that. So things that you do that are tangible. So the easy thing to point to is your job. So you have your job at work with your job description and these are your duties and this is what you're responsible for. But there could also be hard things outside of that, such as running a podcast, 
or maybe you volunteer at the animal shelter on weekends or something, right? Whatever you spend your time doing, most of your time is going to be spent at work, but maybe you have some volunteer things and maybe you have um, other hobbies and interests um, that, are, that all make up who you are. Those are the hard things. Like say they're tied to your hard skills. You should do those well, right? You don't want to be the person at your organization that is a slacker, that's late, that's untrustworthy, that doesn't produce good work, et cetera. So that's just table stakes. And the expectation is that you're handling your hard skill sets well and you're killing it and you're knocking those things out of the park. That's number one. Now comes the soft. That's related to your soft skills and your interpersonal skills, et cetera. Um, you'll be amazed again, and maybe you've encountered this um, through your own experiences at school and, and at work so far. There's a lot of smart people out there with great ideas um, that do good work, that are killing it at their jobs, but if you put them in a cocktail party, they don't know how to shake hands properly. They don't know how to introduce themselves. They don't know how to make themselves attractive to somebody who might want to get to know them on a professional level, right? So that's a skill. And it's a lot harder to teach, but it's easier to learn with practice. And so never undervalue what you learn just by leaving the house and talking to people that you see on the street and talking to people that work at the grocery store. All of these things are gonna make it a lot easier to meet people when you network with them at a conference, at an event, through a professional organization, and it makes you attractive to people who would want to get to know you. And then people are going to want to be around you. Couple that with the hard skill sets and your industry knowledge. You're somebody that for somebody who is more advanced in their career, they know that you're worth the time in investing in a mentor-mentee relationship because you're not somebody that um, I'm going to have to mentor through the basics such as what do you mean you you keep showing up for work late you should show up for work on time right what do you mean you're handing in your projects you know two days after they're due no you know that they're due every friday if i'm a mentor and somebody that has some experience under my belt i want to feel like i'm mentoring somebody not necessarily parenting them or managing them the way that their boss should be managing them so the hard skill sets and the work that you do both inside and outside of work, the expectation is that you're hitting it out of the park and batting a thousand on all of those fronts. Couple that with the soft skills. That's how you brand yourself as somebody that um, is worth developing a mentor-mentee relationship with. That was an excellent point to close us out, Raven, as far as health administration, as you know, and you've told me many times is so relationship driven and that can kind of also find its way into making you an attractive mentee. And then at the same time, you have to show through your production that 
you're somebody who's worth investing in. Right. So it's again, thinking about yourself as a stock, right? So if, if you're selling a stock, right, if you're CEO of a company, you started your own company and you're about to go public, you want people to buy the stock. Why should they buy? And if you start thinking about yourself as a stock, you start, um, you start appreciating that there's a market out there that is interested in buying or not buying, right? The market will tell you what you're worth. And if you find yourself in a position where, look, I think that I'm a smart person and I have great experience and you know, I bring a lot to the table and you know, nobody's buying the stock that I'm selling, right? There's, there are times where we do have blind spots in our career. And the market will tell you if you have blind spots that, hey, maybe there's some self-awareness issues that we could work on here, right? If you think about yourself as a stock, you become hyper aware of where those growth opportunities are, or the market can give you positive feedback back to you in letting you know that you're making all the right moves. Because every time you're selling your stock, people are ready, willing, and happy to buy. Raymond, one thing that's been awesome about having you as a mentor, and I'm sure after this episode, something that our listeners will really appreciate is you bring both a 30,000 foot view and also a metaphoric view to both healthcare and leadership development. And on behalf of Mill and myself and all of our listeners, we really appreciate you having you on. And I'm very confident that the insights you provided today are going to be things that Mill and I can take and use throughout our careers, but also something that our listeners can also take and apply throughout their careers. Yeah, Jefferson Milland, it's been a pleasure and thank you for having me. I, it was a lot of fun. We really appreciate you coming on. And as always, thank you so much to our listeners for our continued support. And we really hope that you enjoyed this episode.